Hi again, and welcome to part six of The Living Enterprise from CIO in association with Adobe and Microsoft. In this series of podcasts, we've assembled a stellar cast of CIOs and IT leaders to share their advice on how CIOs can become creative and proactive leaders of dynamic, agile living enterprises. Today, we're venturing into the darker corners of the web to examine data protection and security in a digital world. We don't ask every retailer in the United States to put an anti-missile system on the roof of their store. But we do ask them to deploy cybersecurity measures at scale and at their own cost. The one thing that I learned quite early on is that when you start to talk about risk, there's not too many board members that don't listen. It's not only you know about ensuring that your environment is being secure, it's also about the possibility of using cybersecurity as a advantage when it comes to selling products to the customer. In today's data-driven economy, cybersecurity has become a priority for any forward-thinking business. But Kane McGladry, cybersecurity strategist at Ascent Solutions and a senior member of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, knows all too well that hasn't always been the case. Back in the day when dinosaurs roamed the internet, we called it information security and it was considered to be a technical function. And it was not considered to be a threat to the business. It certainly was not considered to be material to the business. Aileen Hayes is now Director of Technology for EMEA at Experian. Over her career, she's held similar posts across the private and public sector, including 10 years at Sheffield University, where she said it was difficult to get anybody to take cybersecurity seriously, especially the students. So the university I worked at had about 30 plus thousand students and about a quarter of those would change every three to four years. So every four years, it was a whole new set. And it was important that people can engage with the systems and use the systems as friction-free as possible. The downside to making that really easy to use, really easy to access, friction-free wherever possible, and for a cohort of people that are going to be changing very regularly, who have hugely diverse ranges of digital literacy, is that you end up having to build things that are relatively open. Because by its nature, a university is collaborative and open. But that brings then some very specific challenges about how you protect the data that you need to protect in a very open and collaborative environment. And I have to say that when I worked in the university sector, some of our students seemed to feel that their information security skills, their cyber skills, were best practised by having to go at hacking us. So I would regularly be dealing with students who didn't seem to think it was an issue attempting to do that. So I was quite often interviewing students as part of a disciplinary procedure, explaining why what they were doing was completely inappropriate and illegal. So what changed? A combination of high-profile data breaches from the likes of Yahoo, Marriott International and Facebook certainly helped concentrate minds. 
Data breaches like these cause not only massive reputational damage, but can also mean the company taking a big financial hit, as happened to US retailer Target back in 2013. Here's Kane McGladry again. Target had a bad day. They had a very notable breach, and it was via their supply chain via an HVAC, a heating and air conditioning company that got shelled and allowed the threat actors to get in. And if you look at what happened to Target, they lost a whole bunch of customer confidence. They got lost a whole bunch of consumer credit cards right before a major holiday season, and that affected their bottom line. I read one study where uh, it was like $200 million after insurance was the immediate consequence of that to their bottom line. So it did have a very substantial material effect to them and to their workforce and to their community. In the end, though, Target took the hit, ramped up their cybersecurity and survived. Kane says it can be a very different story for smaller firms if they're responsible for a breach that exposes others in the supply chain. Consider the example of uh, Visser Manufacturing out of Colorado. They're a small manufacturing shop. They do metal design, advanced metal work. They were in a supply chain. They had a ransomware attack. They had a bad day. And the threat actors were able to exfiltrate data not only from Visser, which, again, metal work. They got information about SpaceX. They got information about Tesla. They got information about Raytheon. They got information about Lockheed Martin. And... You have to ask yourself, if you are at Raytheon or Lockheed Martin or SpaceX, are you ever going to do business with Visser again? Probably not. Probably the fact that your plans for whether it's a missile system or a car just ended up on the dark web, you're not going to take their sales call as a matter of fact. You're not going to consider doing business with them because, again, that's their business. They are in a supply chain where they make neat stuff for cool people. They're not going to be able to continue to operate with those sales contracts in place. They're going to have to find out how to remove the threat actors from their network, which is already a headache, having to evict them as well as to deal with the ransomware breach. But then how do you deal with the reputational fallout when you don't have the marketing budget of a target and you're working in a smaller, under-regulated niche industry? The one thing that I learned quite early on is that when you start to talk about risk, there's not too many board members that don't listen. David McGrath is CDO of Clubs Australia. You don't want to be the board member that has a data breach in your organisation and have to be the one that writes the letter to all of your membership database to basically say, guys, I'm really sorry, we we did everything we possibly could, but there's been a breach. We're not quite sure where your data's gone to, uh, but it's been taken and we've done everything we possibly can to make sure it doesn't happen again, but trust us going forward. It's a pretty tough conversation to have. So, you know, a lot of the conversations that we have with directors and with our own organisation is how do we manage the risk around cyber and, and making sure that we're on the front foot, that you do everything you possibly can to make sure that you're not at the other end of something sinister. We know there's no such thing really as an impenetrable system, so there's a best endeavours here. The fact that no system can be 100% secure is a given amongst those who work in cybersecurity. Stefan Latuski is CIO at Siemens Mobility. You cannot simply take care of everything. That might be a good ambition level, but we have to admit that this is not possible, right? Hence, we have to understand what are our so-called golden nuggets. And we have to ensure that those golden nuggets are really protected to a level which is sufficient. Which does not mean that we don't need to take care of the rest, don't get me wrong. 
but we have to especially take care of those kind of golden nuggets. And what we introduced already a couple of years ago, uh, predominantly introduced by the information security guys, is the so-called asset classification process. And that asset classification process is a process where we as an IT organization jointly walk through together with the respective business owner in terms of um, understanding what is the criticality of an application when it comes to confidentiality of the data, when it comes to availability of the service, and you know when it comes to integrity. And in that sense, we are able to classify the various different applications and as a result of that classification and then you know depending on the asset classification process level that has been achieved as a result of the answers we know what kind of mitigation measures what kind of protection concepts do need to be developed in terms of really securing that kind of specific part of the landscape. It is an ongoing evolutionary challenge associated with cybersecurity because it can't be easily finished. Kane McGladry again. First of all, cybersecurity is comparably new, required we have computers, and we haven't had those for as long as we've had earthquakes or fires as floods to develop best practices associated with it. But the other thing that differentiates cybersecurity as a risk to a fire or to a flood, is that it has human actors who have a remarkable economic incentive to do their job and to do their job well. Unlike a fire, right? And fires don't innovate. There's not some new way we're going to have a fire. Uh, I guarantee you by the end of the week, we're going to have a dozen new ways for threat actors to go out in both technical and non-technical means and to do their jobs. And I say doing their jobs because... Some of these threat actors now work for governments, right? That's their job. They clock in at 8 a.m., they drink the bad coffee, they go to the break room, they have whatever the local regional snack is of choice. They take a lunch break, they work in the afternoon, they go home to their families. And being a threat actor is what pays their bills. It's what's putting their kids through school. It's what's paying their mortgage. No other business risk today with the exception of corporate espionage, which, funny enough, has mostly become cyber-related these days, no other threat to business today really has that interesting bit to it where it could be a governmental agency that's decided to attack your business. Or it could be a criminal enterprise, or it could be a criminal enterprise in a region that has favorable laws towards criminal enterprises that aren't attacking inside of that region or inside of that nation's borders. And that's really a challenge for businesses because if you think about other matters of national defense, we don't ask every retailer in the United States to put an anti-missile system on the roof of their store, right? That's just not a reasonable thing. That would be crazy. But we do ask them to deploy cybersecurity measures at scale and at their own cost to be able to defend not only against criminal actors who are probably seeking to gain economically from breaches and from cybersecurity incidents, but also against nation states that are trying to, in a lot of cases, either exfiltrate intellectual property for their own development of competing products or to gain economically. Threat actors are endlessly inventive and highly motivated. It's an ongoing game of cat and mouse, and InfoSec teams need to use all the tools at their disposal to ward off attacks. 
And David McGrath at Clubs Australia sees one particular technology as a key weapon. In an evolving cybersecurity world, the one thing that plays really strongly in in your favour is AI. And we know that the bad actors are out there using AI wherever they can to try and find a position within your tech stack where they can penetrate through and, and access what they need to. And we're using at the moment some sophisticated AI that's actually using AI against the AI. And so anomaly detection is really important for us. So, you know, creating a sense of normal, I think, is the first thing you do when you're looking for anomalies. The world of cybercrime is broad, complex and constantly evolving. So much so that Isaac Sokolik, president of Star CIO, a company that helps organisations with transformation programmes, says it's vital that CIOs make the most of whatever specialist outside help they can hire in. Most companies, regardless of the talent of their InfoSec teams and their CISOs, are not security experts. There's an entire world of security out there that they are learning, that change and evolve too quickly, that require too many tools to get access to. So much security is about who you know and who you're partnering with. And I think that needs to be very instrumented inside an InfoSec group so that when there are things that are happening in their environment, that they have people and partners they can call on to get help around. David McGrath at Clubs Australia is another who champions the idea of bringing in external experts to beef up security. Risk has never been more topical, and I certainly urge anyone that's you know looking to try and, and get on top of that that risk profile. You know, there's some fantastic cybersecurity companies out there, and you know it may not be a combination of just one. You might want to use a couple in a stack, and it might be two or three different cyber groups that do different things, but they certainly provide that protection and layer of security that allows you to sleep a little better at night. The CIO can, though, lead the way in ensuring that their company is compliant with the relevant data protection regulations, like GDPR in the EU or the California Privacy Act and US Cloud Acts in the States. The threat of heavy fines for breaches of those regulations is another reason why discussions about privacy and security are now on the boardroom agenda. But as Stefan Latuski from Siemens admits, it's been an extraordinarily complicated process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> uh, the whole GDPR thing is quite a tough one, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, everyone was aware that this is happening, right? Yeah, so that uh, was not surprising at all. But honestly, not that much happened within the company. And then all of a sudden, GDPR was there and we had to step immediately into a whole bunch of analysis together with our colleagues from information security and cybersecurity and obviously the colleagues you know from the data protection teams within the legal environments to really understand in what sense do we need to change the environment to cope with all the different rules and regulations of GDPR and we conducted that kind of structured analysis, at least, you know, for all the IT services which are under the responsibility of the uh, IT organization, which is about 400-ish different IT services and approximately 1,000 different applications. The introduction of regulations like GDPR is a reflection of public concern about privacy, about how personal data is used. And as Cynthia Stoddard, CIO at Adobe, pointed out in episode four of this podcast, trust is key to customer experience. 
It's really important to build trust with your customers. So have them understand how you handle their data, you know, what you're going to do with it and make sure that they are in agreement. Because again, that experience is the experience that the customer wants to have. So whatever that experience is, the customer should have a part in saying, hey, this is how I want you to use my data or use my interactions so that I can be serviced better. So it's up to the customer and having that trust and that relationship and that openness. It's not only you know, about ensuring that your environment is being secure. Stefan Lechewski from Siemens Mobility again. It's also about the possibility of using cybersecurity as a advantage when it comes to selling products to the customer. Because, you know, nowadays a train obviously is not only a little bit of metal, it's a lot of software in those trains, right? And if you can convince your customer that, you know, all the software is has been developed in a secure environment, but also, you know, the, the environment which is, you know, in the train and outside the train and so on and so forth is also secure that, you know, no one is able to hack your products. That's obviously also a big advantage, which can be used in terms of convincing the customer buying your products. Hence, cybersecurity is not only getting more and more important in terms of securing the internal landscape, it's also becoming more and more a business model. So putting security front and centre of an organisation's strategy isn't just a question of PR, it's a business decision. But there is a balance to be struck here between security and innovation. Adam Leach is the CIO of Nominet. Yeah, I think any CIO is kind of balancing this triumph of needs between dev, ops and security. And you're kind of balancing uh, the need to create value by getting new features out to customers or new products out to customers. But at the same time, you're dealing with the kind of operational running of the day-to-day. And, uh, you know, it's really important for Nominet's business for us to be stable and to be reliable. And I think that goes for loads of other businesses need to have that stability. It's a difficult balance to strike. So I think my challenge as a CEO to quite a mature technology business and a technology team, which has been operating for some time and has high degree of pressure to keep things stable. And because of that, there's a less of desire to introduce change. But introducing change is what we must do. And if we want to continue to grow as a business and we want to continue to serve our existing customers, we need to introduce new features. So being able to balance that. And I see that my role as CIO to make sure we definitely keep the stability within the organization and of our products, but allow us to introduce things, new things, new features more quickly. It's a fine balance to strike, but the idea of putting security first, sec DevOps, is no longer anathema to developers. Steve Allison is Adobe's Head of Product Marketing, Audience and Data Technologies for EMEA. Having privacy by design, you see quite often now, having security thought processes embedded within the actual development of software and business practices is happening more and more. And that's a really positive thing. Data security has to be really important to the organisation and be up front and centre, and I think that's a really good trend. It goes hand in hand with some of the standardisation that is now happening because we've got more businesses 
engaged with, with the cloud, engaged with digital services, engaged with sharing data. So our body of knowledge, if you like, on, on how best to do some of these things has evolved considerably over the last couple of years. And that's resulted in things like you know, open standards for security, standards for data models that make it easier to make sure that we're pushing the right data into the right locations. So all of these things become tremendously important in making sure that the organization itself is being compliant, is thinking about these things right from scratch, but also in helping customers to understand that, yes, their personal information is being taken seriously and they're getting something back from it. And the agility then that you can build on top of these systems, that's going to be really important to the customers in the next few years. Data and how it's used is at the heart of these considerations about privacy and security and is therefore pivotal to the success of the living enterprise. But all these business goals can only be achieved if that data is properly refined and properly curated. Andrew Wilson is the CDO of Microsoft. Data and intelligence really need to be at the heart of the strategy because they're driving an ability to be compliant, they're driving an ability to be secure, they're driving an ability to drive a great experience. And it's one of the biggest change management objectives within the enterprise as well, because data is everywhere. People get very possessive in terms of the ownership of data. So you've got to look at democratization, but you've got to look at the implications of that because transparency can bring a lot of insight. But as the CFO knows, you don't want all of that insight everywhere all the time. So there's a huge challenge and balance between democratization, speed, agility, but security and appropriate use and access to data as well. And it's one of the biggest topics in modern transformation. And the solution to striking that balance? Good data governance. When everyone says the word governance, we tend to tense up, don't we? But at its heart, how to manage, store, curate, maintain data, how to share it appropriately, how to connect it, how to analyze it and infer insight, how to then promote but also retire it and the intelligence around it, that is your data governance strategy. And so the technology leader, the CIO, needs to ensure that the business's data culture can be moved to that. Often data is seen to be owned by organization. You know, HR owns the talent data and CFO owns the finance data. The marketing lead owns the customer data. Well, actually, the enterprise owns the data or needs to own the data because the data needs to be connected horizontally and around business process and around customer experience, not around corporate entity. So you really shift the use of data into a cross-enterprise mode. You establish a data lake, you connect data. So I do think that a good, robust dialogue about data governance is a key characteristic of a successful transformation and operations strategy. Andrew Wilson, the CDO of Microsoft, on the importance of data governance in a living enterprise, bringing us to the end of this episode. Next time, our panel of CIOs are going to be polishing up their crystal balls to give us their unique take on what's coming over the horizon to excite and challenge the next generation of IT leaders. 
In the meantime, to dig deeper into the philosophy behind the Living Enterprise and the CIO's role in it, search The Living Enterprise to check out our dedicated website for insights, advice and resources to help CIOs build one.